in, in verses 1 and 2, as Amos starts, he says, look, I want you to hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. He's speaking to them saying, you need to hear it against the whole family that I have brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 2, you, have, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And what he's reminding them is of their heritage and of their history. He says, look, God has chosen you as his people. He chose you out of all the nations to, to, to show his character, his glory, his name, his fame, his renown to the world. He's like, he selected you to be his chosen, adopted son. That he would pour out all of his blessing and mercy and grace on. And that the nations would then come and flock to you to see your God, to worship him and to know him. That was the, the point of the covenant. We see this in Abraham in, um, in Genesis 12. That he says, look, I'm going to raise up a people through your lineage. Right? They're going to be my people and the nations of this world will be blessed. We see it in Genesis 17 as well. If we look at Deuteronomy 7... Listen to how he says it in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. He's speaking to Israel and shows you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Right? So he's saying it wasn't because you were impressive. I did it because I loved you. And I've made you mine. And then not only did I make you mine, but when you were enslaved in Egypt, when you had this harsh taskmaster over you, I rescued you. And I redeemed you. And I brought you out. And I have guided you. And I have loved you. And I have been with you. And I have been for you. And because of that, what, here's what's happened. The people of God have presumed upon that presence and that character and that love of saying, when God shows up, he's for us. And they've begun to believe that they are invulnerable. That God would never touch his people. They feel like they have this divine get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? And, and what you're picturing here is the petulant, spoiled child who knows daddy's always got my back. So I can do what I want and I can flaunt it. And I can be ugly and horrible and dad's always going to come in and defend me because I'm the apple of his eye. And they're doing it as as a nation and they are violating their conscience. They're ignoring the revelation that God has given them. Um, in, In Deuteronomy 28, he told them, look, if you don't listen and obey, curses will come upon you. And they've just kind of forgotten that part. That was part of the deal. They have not correctly imaged the character of their God, which was their entire purpose, was to know him, to be known by him, and that the nations would be drawn to him because of his relationship with Israel. And they are not rightly reflecting his character. And so even though they've been chosen, and they've been adopted, and they've been redeemed, and they've been known, they have misunderstood God's love. And so look at how verse 2 ends. So you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's saying, look, you do not get to escape this because I've chosen to love and know you. The discipline is going to come because you have known better and you have rejected me. You have not trusted me. You have not followed me. You have not done what I've called you to do. And so then beginning in verse 3 through 6, 
he lays out some just kind of some interesting, almost like folksy th- situations that happen, right? And he says, look, do two people walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Right? He's saying like if they're walking together at some point along the way, they've met and decided to continue to walk together. And the audience is like, yeah, Amos, that's, that's how that happens, right? If people are walking together, they've decided to walk together. All right. He goes, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey, right? Like the idea is of the lion hunting and stalking. And when the lion roars, the prey knows he's gotten too close, right? The lion has now got me because he's put his sight on me and I'm going to lose now. And they're like, yeah, the lion roars when it sees prey. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? No, he's saying like he's celebrating and feasting in his den. Amos, we get it. What are you saying? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth if there's no trap for it? So he's saying, if a bird doesn't land on the trap, a trap doesn't spring up out of nowhere and grab it. He's saying there's cause and effect. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? He's saying, look, a trap doesn't just go off, but it goes off when something lands in it. And then if a trumpet is blown in a city, are the people not afraid? And this is the idea that an attacking enemy is surrounded and is coming. And they would blow the ram's horn. And the people would know, right, to take up arms. Someone is coming for us. And so there would be fear throughout the city because the battle is at hand. And so what he's saying is, look, there is a natural cause and effect to relationships. There's a natural cause and effect in the world. And so what Amos is saying is, look, they don't believe They're going to be judged. And what Amos is laying out for them is, you're being judged because you've done these things. The the natural cause and effect here is your willingness to reject and to not listen and to not follow God and to not image Him properly is bringing an effect. And that effect is judgment. The cause has been your rebellion. And so they're sitting here agreeing with Him on these kind of folksy things. And then He says this, So does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And what he is telling them is judgment is coming. And when it comes, you'll know who it's from. He's saying, don't think it's an accident. Don't think I've fallen asleep on the job. Don't think something else is going on. And and the Lord just missed it. He says, when you're destroyed, when you're taken, when you're under siege, know that it is being done and I'm the one who's chosen to do it. And so right now you're imagining the people of God saying, wait a second, God. You're supposed to be on our side. You're supposed to be for us. And he's saying, your sin, right, has crossed a line and it will now be dealt with. And know, know as it comes that it is from me. That his sights are now set on them. So Amos continues. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. He's saying, look, I'm not coming up with this message. I have met with God and God has given me this message to give to you. In Jeremiah 28, sorry, chapter 23, verse 18. Jeremiah says, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? He's referring at that point to false prophets. And he's saying that a true prophet has stood before God, has has fellowshiped with God, has heard a message from God and is now delivering it. So Amos is saying, look, I'm not creating this. I don't want to, I'm not coming to do this for no reason. Listen, the lion has roared, verse 8. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? 
And Amos is saying, look, he's spoken, he has roared, I have no choice but to give this message. That, that we don't select ourselves to be prophets, that God elects and selects them and gives them a message to share and to pass on. And Amos is saying, I am simply passing on what I have seen and heard from God. This is from him. This is not my contrived message. I am compelled by God to do this. And so then he begins. So proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in the land of Egypt in verse 9. And say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. So remember, Jerusalem has been Israel's capital, its home. But when, is, when the ten tribes separated out and split the kingdom into a north kingdom and a south kingdom, Jeroboam set up Samaria as their capital city. And he made Bethel their religious city because he didn't want people traveling back into the southern kingdom, into Jerusalem, where they would be reminded of their heritage and their religious situation and be tempted to not be loyal politically. And so he set up a, se- a separate capital, Samaria, and he set up a separate religious center in Bethel, And so now they've kind of separated themselves from their heritage in Jerusalem. And what he, when he says Ashdod, he is talking about the Philistines, who are numbered in chapter 1 as one of the countries that will receive judgment. And then we know that Egypt has long been an enemy of Israel. The Philistines have long been an enemy of Israel. And in a legal setting, God is calling two eyewitnesses. And he says, Philistines... People who are resented and hated by Israel for their brutality and their warring against them. Egypt, a people who have long crushed my people, who have long been an enemy of my people, who Israel had, a, had baggage and history and resentment and hatred towards. He calls them and he says, sit on the mountains of Samaria and watch what I'm about to do. These are people that Israel would have felt morally superior to. They would have said, these people have no right to judge us. We are far superior, far better to them, far better than them. And he's calling them in. And he's saying, you're going to watch. You're going to be my witnesses. Because God is going to judge. And he's going to specifically, in chapter 3, he's talking about the upper crust of society. But he's inviting their, their enemies in to watch. They're known for their injustice and their brutality. So here's what he's saying about Israel. You have sunk so low in your treatment of people that now people who don't know God, who are non-covenant people, they would judge you and say you're guilty. By not even religious standards are you guilty. You're guilty in the way that you have oppressed people, the way that you've interacted with humanity So much that your hated enemies would say, yeah, that's guilt. And they're deserving of what's happening. We will be eyewitnesses to these atrocities that they have committed. And confirm it when judgment comes. So can you imagine the people of Israel hearing that two of their most hated enemies are going to sit as their judges? That God is inviting them to watch him punish them. Right, so for most of us, when your parents punished you, right, it was a private matter. Right, it was not done on public display. And what is happening here is God is saying, hey, come watch the spanking that's about to take place. Right? And these are people that you loathe, and they're being invited in to watch what's going to be done to you. And you can just imagine, like, right, the, the humiliation, 
but also your blood boiling of not them. We're, I'm better than them. If anyone deserves it, they deserve it, not me. And God is saying, no, 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 you deserve it and they're going to watch. He continues. So he says, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria in verse 9 and see the great tumults within her, the oppressed in her midst. Verse 10, they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their stronghold. So he's saying, look, look at the people who are oppressed. Look at the victims that they are holding down. He's talking specifically to the, to the higher um, society folks here. They don't know how to do right. They store up violence and robbery in their stronghold. So he's saying, instead of storing up treasure, they are storing up violence and robbery. This is the way they've gained their wealth and their security and their stability. He's saying that's what they have, what they treasure is they oppress people, they hold them down, and in it they've gained wealth and stability through violence and robbery. He's like, there's a, there are victims crying out, longing for justice. Therefore, look at verse 11. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary will surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. So he's saying, so you're going to be surrounded and you're going to be overtaken. A nation is going to come in and they're going to take down your strongholds. And they're going to do it in the way that you've done it. Through oppression and violence and robbery and brutality. He's like, you've done this and now it will be done to you. And he continues in verse 12. Thus says the Lord. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. So here's what's going on. This is um, a law from Exodus 22, verse 12 and following. Where if a shepherd had a, a sheep that was lost under his care, if he did not bring back evidence that it had been mauled by a wild animal, the assumption was that he had done something nefarious himself. That he had stolen it, that he had, had sold it, that he had gained somewhat and benefited somewhat from it. And so if he had no evidence, then he had to pay restitution for that, that lamb. And so they were willing to go and, and take even, if they just had a leg bone and an ear, if they could somehow say like, here's what's left, I think the lion got it, right? Then, the, then they would not have to pay restitution. And so the, the rescue here is ironic. That lamb got rescued, but it was only to save the shepherd's skin because the, the lamb still got eaten. And listen to what he's saying. So you know this law, that as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, shows how the people of Israel, so he's saying, so will you who dwell in Samaria be rescued. Right? And they're like, oh, we're going to be rescued. No. With a corner of a couch and part of a bed. So the leg and the ear kind of show totality, right? The the leg is at the bottom, the ear is at the top, the, the lamb is gone. And so he says here, you're going to be rescued by the, the, the footstool of the bed and the headboard of the bed. That's all that's going to be left. What's the bed signify? Sensuality, luxury, comfort, ease, selfish bodily care at the sake of those who they're oppressing. And so he's saying at the end, when I come and wipe you out, they're going to pick up a headboard and a footboard and say, this is what's left. And it's going to be to your shame and to your utter destruction. So the rescue is not a rescue. The rescue is your destruction. And there will be those who will be left to pick up the pieces and say the Lord has been complete in what he's done. So then verse 13. So hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. 
that on that day I will punish Israel for its transgression. I will punish the altars of Bethel. He's talking now about the religious. He's like, I'm going to punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off. The horns of the altar, if they were grabbed onto, you you couldn't be punished, right? It was a place of refuge, a place of sanctuary. And he's saying they're going to be cut off. There will be no place to run. Your religion will not save you. Because remember, they have set up a false cultic religion that mimics Judaism, but is not trusting God. It's trusting their false teachings. And he says, and I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory, which are these incredible homes that have been decked out with ivory. We, we see wealth and opulence. And what he's saying is, I'm going to, Bethel means the house of God. He's like, I'm going to strike the house of God, and I'm going to strike your winter homes, and I'm going to strike your summer homes, and I'm going to strike the, strike the opulent homes, and the homes are going to be destroyed. And the picture here is not just that we're going to have an army that's going to come in and take over. We're going to have an earthquake that's just going to kind of wipe things out. And I want you to know when that army comes and when that earthquake comes, it was my hand that's done it. Because of your sin against me. And the things that you have trusted in have been your wealth and your privilege and your stability. And it's been in your religious system that you've created for the last 200 years and assumed that I've been pleased with. And you will turn to them instead of me. And you will find that they will fail you. Because Psalm 46.1 tells us that the Lord is our refuge and our strength. He's the one that we turn to in the storm. And he says, you're going to turn to the altars of Bethel and there will be no horns to save you because they will be destroyed. And you'll turn to your homes that will show wealth and stability and power over others. And I'm going to shatter them. And the things that you trust in and the things that you have found security in will be no more. And I want you to know that it's me who has done it. Right, this is not a message that people, like, they're squirming as they're hearing this. They're going, this cannot be. This cannot be. And so we have said that as we walk through Amos, we need to leave some of these, like, just feelings of, of judgment and weight and of significance upon us. Right, that there is, it ends chapter 15, right? I'm sorry, verse 15. And then it rolls into chapter 4, and if you go, it doesn't get better. Right, and we're going to pick up there next week. And there's going to be hope in Amos, but it's not going to come for a while. Because this weight of God's expectation and his expectation of how we will follow after him is heavy and it's weighty and it matters. And so this morning, I want us to to rest here with this last word, the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord, that he wants them to know I'm the one that's going to do it. And there are a few things I want us to take from chapter 3 this morning as we wrap up. The first is this. That God sees, God hears, and God responds to injustice. The people of Israel, when they were enslaved, it says in in, in the early parts of Exodus, that they cried out to God. And it says, and God heard them. And then God rescued them. We saw last week that those, you, you weren't supposed to take the cloak of someone Right And keep it overnight. Because that might have been their only warmth, their only pillow, their only comfort. And God says, if you do that, and they cry out, I'll hear them. What we know about God is this, is that He sees injustice. He sees it. And He hears it. And He responds to it. And the people of God have been oppressing people. That this horrible news of chapter 3 would have actually been good news to the oppressed in Israel at this day. That they would have been saying, finally, he hears. He's going to rescue us. So church, for most of us, 
we really, we, we, we fall in line with Israel here, right? And we're like, oh my word, the Lord is angry. But there are some of you who have been victimized. And you need to be reminded that the Lord hears and sees your victimization. That he has not looked over it. That he cares deeply for you and that he has seen it, he has heard it, and he will respond to it. And the lion roars and says, it will not be this way. And judgment will come. Church, we cannot miss this side of God's character here. That the lion has roared and said, no more. They have gone from being the rescued ones crying out to the oppressors, to the ones selling people into slavery. They have become the taskmasters that they needed rescue from, and God has shown that his character is consistent. That when those who are being oppressed cry out, that he responds and he acts regardless of who has done the oppressing. That he is on behalf of the victim, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed. The second is not just that God hears and sees and responds. is that we see so far in the first three chapters of Amos that sin is a serious deal. Now listen, we're in a Sunday morning service. You would assume that there's the assumption of, yeah, we know sin is a serious deal. But I don't know that, that that's who we are anymore, is even in our culture, right? If we think about it, sin continues to kind of be like, like softened, right? That we look at it and say, oh... They're not a bad person. They just did a bad thing. Right? You will see people who have done some of the most heinous crimes in the world say, I'm not a bad person. I just did some bad things. Serial killers have said things like this. I was a good person who did bad things. Or or, or for the the sake of self-esteem, that we're like, I don't want to call that sin. I don't want to call it bad. I don't want to call it needing of repentance or forgiveness. And so we start to whitewash sin and say, ah, we just, we just need a little boost here. What we see in Amos chapters 1, 2, and 3 is this, is that sin is serious. That the standard that God expects is a perfect reflection of Him. And that He is holy and that He is just and that we are stained by sin. And so the question should be this, who can stand? And the answer is we can't. But one has. And it was Jesus. Right? In his perfect obedience and trust and fellowship with God. Who went to the cross and substituted himself in our place. And he took the wrath of God that we see being poured out and promised in Amos. Jesus took it so that Amos 3 isn't your story. But Amos 3 will be the story for some. Who don't trust Jesus. Who don't know him. And what we've seen in Amos and what we just saw as we walked through 1st and 2nd and 3rd John is this, is it is not enough to say, Lord, Lord, I believe. That obedience matters. And obedience is not what saves us. Obedience is not what transforms us. It is the blood, it's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that saves us, that redeems us. But then we are expected to rightly image Jesus. To be transformed by one degree of glory to the next, Paul would say. Moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision throughout life. And the fact is, is no matter how long you've walked with Jesus this morning, you still need him as much as you did the day you got him. Because you are still marked and stained by sin, but it's no longer counted against you. And so the wrath of God is not poured out against you, it was poured out against Jesus. And so if you don't glory and worship in the one who has rescued you, if you don't know that this is what you've been rescued from, then you see Jesus is, he's an all right dude. 
He is our rescuer. He is everything. And He has saved you so that you can avoid this because He took it. God is consistent that He will pour out His wrath on the ungodly. And Jesus has done it on your behalf. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our perfection. And so when you fail, we have someone to turn to. We have an advocate. Because you won't be perfect and you won't be righteous. But in Christ, we have those things. And so if we become the religious elite who oppress and assume that we've got it all together, we see how God feels about that. Or are we humble servants looking to honor, to model, to reflect the character of Jesus to the world? In His humility, His kindness, His generosity, His graciousness, His servant-heartedness. And the final thing is this. It's not just that God sees and hears and responds. It's not just that sin is serious and has to be dealt with. And so this morning you're either standing in full judgment or you are standing with Jesus as your rescuer. The final thing is this, that then we are called to be reconcilers. So listen, we currently are living in a pause in history. The warning sirens were sounded when Jesus came. And when Jesus came and when he went back to heaven, he says, you continue to tell people about me until the day I come back. Well, the day he comes back will be the great and terrible day of the Lord where judgment will be poured out on those who don't yet know Jesus, who haven't trusted him, who have rebelled against him. And so it will be a day of rescue for some and it will be a day of horror and judgment, much like Amos 3. And we live in between the warning sirens going off And him splitting the sky. And so we've been called now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be reconcilers. Listen to what he says. Beginning verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ... Has reconciled, it means he's made us right to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation to make others right. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Good news. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That is the message that we have as the warning sirens are going off. That God is coming back and in his holy perfection, he has some thoughts and feelings on sin. And because we know the truth that we implore people, be made right with God. And how are you made right with God? It is not in voting the right way. It is not in giving money to the church. It is in trusting the blood, the life, and the resurrection of Jesus. Of making Him king and of following Him back to the Father. And so you think, well, hey, it's been 2,800 years since Amos. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus. Then be reminded of Second Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
That's his desire, and it's why he is waiting. But the wait will end. And so, church, if we know that this is who God is in Amos, if we know that the hope and the answer is Jesus, then we owe it to the world to say with some urgency, judgment's coming, but rescue's come before. Right? That we can know and be transformed and rejoice in him. And so, church, we're called to live as image bearers. It's why we are to know and to love one another with the, we do the, the four dozen plus one another so we pray for one another and we bear one another's burdens and we love one another and we forgive one another and we're long suffering with one another because we're reflecting the character of Jesus to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the world begins to take note. And when they ask for the hope that we have when we don't mourn death the same way, that we say, here's why. Because the death of our death was the death of Jesus. So we have hope everlasting. In church, it means that we also have to deal with injustice. And if we're not careful, what happens is the outside world begins to say, man, church is kind of dirty on the inside. We've seen this, right? Where the the outside world begins to judge the church for the, the atrocities and the true injustice that's actually happened within the church. And the church can often look, and much like Israel, say, who are you to judge us? You don't even know Jesus. Like that, like that excuses our sin. That the outside world who doesn't know Jesus could call and say, that's wrong. That's unjust. That we have to be honest with our own struggle and our own sin and call it what it is and deal with it because God does see it, he does hear it, and he does respond to it. Because Jesus has paid for it. Sin is serious that we have to be reconcilers to the world, but also with one another. And that we don't get to knock the voice and say, oh, you're Egypt. You're the Philistines. Your, your opinion doesn't matter. If they're calling us on sin that God has said you're not reflecting our character, then they're right. And that we are being judged accordingly. Church, Amos is a hard, heavy book. And it's going to continue for a few weeks. Would we be willing to allow the light from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to expose areas of sin? Right? Areas where we have kind of said, ah, I think I'm good because I can say, Lord, Lord, and we haven't really dealt with in our life. That we would ask Him to expose them, knowing that we have an advocate that we can repent to, confess to, and that we will be made right and holy and perfect. For those of you this morning who don't know Jesus, who maybe you have been religious and you would have turned to your religious traditions like those in Samaria would have and gone to the horns of Bethel and realized it has nothing for you. Would you know that Jesus loves you? That he is calling you, that he is wooing you and saying, I'll take you to the Father. I've paid for that already. And so maybe for the first time this morning, he's saying, that's you, but it doesn't have to be you anymore. Would you trust and respond to him? There will be some men and women in the back of the room here in a moment as the band comes up. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, they'll be back there for any reason.